Please open your Bibles to Psalm 115. Psalm 115. I believe this will be the last Psalm we look at before we turn to a study of Ephesians. But I also think, contrary to what the notes promise, it will take us two weeks to do that. So, um, this morning being a communion Sunday, and there being so much in this Psalm, I thought we gotta we gotta go through this slowly. I know some of you think that that might be an impossibility to slow down even further, but I assure you, it is quite possible. Um, Psalm 115, I'd like to begin by reading it in its entirety, and then we'll have a word of prayer, and then we will dive in. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness, Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. Feet, but they do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both great and small and great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down in silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Lord God, as we study this song, we hear the call not to trust in the gods or the idols of this world, but to trust in you. We hear the call to give glory to none other but to you. We see the blessings that come to those who trust you. So Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Open our eyes. Unstop our ears. Take our dead and stone hearts and replace them with hearts of flesh. Remove the veil that prevents us from seeing. Grant life and light where there is death and darkness. And in doing so, help us to see the glory of your word. Help us to see your glory and in seeing it to be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 115 has neither postscript nor prescript. There's neither anything written at the beginning or at the end. And in many respects, you could view it as a sandwich. The bread, the outer pieces being the first three and the last three verses, which line up thematically. Let me just show you that, because we won't in one message, I think, see it all together. So I want you to see the, the symmetry. So in the first three verses, and as your outline is here, I'll give you your blanks. We have petitions, 
to the God of heaven, petitions to the God of heaven, each verse compromising an implicit or explicit petition. The first, that he would glorify himself alone. He would glorify himself alone. The second, that he would silence the taunts of the nations. And the third, that he would accomplish his will from heaven. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And then in reverse order, look down at verse 16. The heavens are the Lord's heavens. We're back to dealing with the God of heaven. What what do we see in in, in verse 17? We see a people who are silenced. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down in silence. And whereas the opening verse called for praise to the Lord alone, how does the psalm end? We will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. So there's a sort of symmetry in the opening three verses and the closing three verses. And then in between is this massive contrast between the futility, the impotence, the folly, the danger of idolatry, and a call to trust and receive the blessings of those who trust in the Lord. That's kind of the outline of the psalm. So the first three verses, the last three verses, open and close on similar themes, and then we're going to look at the, the, uh, the folly of trusting idols and the blessing of trusting the Lord. And I think we'll probably just get through the first two points this morning. That's kind of the flow of Psalm 115. So with that, let's dive in, looking at the first three verses, petitions to the God of heaven. Petitions to the God of heaven. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Now, there's a lot tied up here. And I think we can be tempted to think that this is just flowery religious language. We're not normally accustomed outside of religious context to speak about giving things glory, right? So we tend to only speak that way in a religious context. And we usually, within religious context, we're doing it because that's what the lyrics of the psalm tell us. Even in the church, we rarely speak those words, those phrases, organically, authentically. And maybe perhaps you might say, I was reading the word yesterday and I was beholding God's glory. But I'm guessing even if you said that, it would sound strange. And the reason I highlight that is we can gloss over this and just think, okay, religious speech. The types of things religious people should say. And it's profound, the opening verse, what it's calling for. And I want you to get the logic of this. So the, the first petition to the God of heaven is that he would glorify himself alone. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And I think there's a profound logic of worship at work here that would be helpful for us to understand. Why is it that the opening call is a call, oh dear God, do not share your glory with us. Do not let us receive the glory. Let you receive all the glory. Why? Why? Would that be the case? And again, we might be tempted to think, well, that's because that's what faithful religious people are supposed to say. And the problem is, if we don't understand this, we can be in danger of thinking what's going on is how C.S. Lewis described how he used to think of it. He describes, um, I know not where, I've been reading a lot of Lewis lately, and so somewhere in Lewis, he says that one of the things that kept him from Christianity for a while was stumbling over a picture of God like some vain old woman who just wants everyone to tell her how pretty she is. 
And he, no, and, and, and because he was misunderstanding this. And he'd see passages like this and say, okay, so the Lord wants his people to tell him how great he is all the time. And it reminded him like a silly old woman who just wants everyone to tell her how pretty she is. And such a God would be contemptible. I agree with him, such a God would be contemptible. That's not what's going on here. That's not what's going on here. Here is, I think, the logic. If you move to the first subpoint. First off, it's not any old glory that the, the petitioners are praying God would not share but receive alone. It's according to, for the sake of, his steadfast love and faithfulness. So, Lord, because of your steadfast love and faithfulness, for its sake, don't you dare share any of your glory with us. Get the spotlights off us. Each and every one of them needs to be on you. That's, that's the petition. How does that make sense? What's the logic? Um, and it's all really tied up in the second point here, which I'll probably take a few minutes to explain. Let me give you the blank. Uh, the first and second point. His steadfast love and faithfulness are at the heart of his glory. We'll see that in a moment. And I'll give you the second point and then try to work through this. The reason why this makes sense is because his commitment to save is his commitment to his own glory. His commitment to save is his commitment to his own glory. Um, turn with me to Exodus 34. Whenever you see that pairing, steadfast love and faithfulness, I think it's always hearkening back to that great encounter with God on Mount Sinai. As you turn, I'll remind you of the context. Moses has gone up on Mount Sinai. All of Israel is gathered around the mountain. He's up on the mountain for 40 days, receiving the law from the Lord. And while he's up there delaying, the people say to Aaron, as for this Moses, we don't know what's become of him. Make for us gods of stone and metal we might worship. So make the golden calf. And while Moses is up on the mountain, the Lord God tells him what he's done. He says, I'm going to wipe them all out. And Moses intercedes for the people. He intercedes for the people, actually starting back in um, 33. In verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send. You have said, I know them, you by name, but you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me your ways. Um, actually, even earlier than that, Moses' first petition uh, look at verse um, 32 of chapter 32. 32-32. This is actually where Moses' prayers with the Lord and petitions begin. No, 31. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. And you can maybe begin to see why I might slow down here, given what this psalm deals with. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book. That you have written. And something amazing happens. A righteous intercessor stands up. He so identifies himself with the people that he, sinned, he links his fate with theirs. The Lord relents. And then Moses intercedes again because the next phase, okay, I will not destroy them all, but I surely will not go up with them for I would consume them. And Moses pleads, no, no. What, what sets us apart from all the peoples but your presence, you are with us. The Lord says, okay. I think in many respects, the following 20 or 30 chapters of tabernacle code are the, uh, the conditions. That, okay, if I'm going to travel with you, there's going to need to be some rules. There's going to need to be some boundaries and some washings and some ovations and some courts and some 
fence posts, but I will go up with you. And then Moses pleads to see God's glory, which is where we're tying into here in verse um, 33, 18. Please show me your glory. And he's first told the Lord's name in verse 19. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and I'll show mercy on whom I show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man cannot see me and live. You shall see in verse 23, you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. And so then in 34, we have that happening. And the Lord hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and he passes by. And again, from a, a revelation standpoint, of revelation of knowledge of God, this is the first real major revealing of God's character. Um, he spoke to Adam and Eve. To our knowledge, there's no written scripture. And he spoke to Abraham. And again, no written scripture. And he taught Abraham who he was through what he did. But Moses, possibly Job, but Moses is the first to put ink to parchment. And first at the burning bush when he tells Moses his name, I am who I am. Yahweh or Jehovah or the Lord. And then here we start to learn about God's character. And as Moses asked to see God's glory, and God passes by, look at 34 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in, there's your pair, steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and the children's fathers to the third and fourth generation. And Moses bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, okay, I will show you as much of my glory as you can handle. And what is God's glory? It's his character. It's who he is. God's glory is not something extrinsic, 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 external. God's glory is not something external to him. It's, it's his character. God's glory is who he is. And he tells us two, if you want to take all those things, he said you can put them into two categories. God is a savior and God is a righteous judge. God is a merciful savior. God is a righteous judge. Therein is his glory. His glory is comprised of both. Look, look at that. I'll tell you my name. I'll pass by with my glory. I will declare to you my name. The Lord passed before him, verse 6, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. That's part of his glory. It's one orb of his glory, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. So Moses is revealed, when I talk about the heart in 1A1, the heart of his glory is his steadfast love and faithfulness, his saving work, his saving activity. You could also, I think, argue that the heart of his glory is his righteousness and his judgment and his justice. It's, it's, It's both of them. So God says, this is my glory, that I am Full and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Okay. So back to Psalm 115. O Lord, don't give glory to us. Give glory to yourself, 
for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. For the sake of that which is your glory. What I think they're saying is this. We want you to act savingly. We want to see and experience that part of your glory which is salvific and not judgment. We want to see and behold and experience your salvation which is comprised with the steadfast love and faithfulness. We want that to be what every spotlight is pointing towards. Don't let a single spotlight point at anything else, certainly not to us, because, the next line, his commitment to save is his commitment to his glory. Turn, turn with me to Ezekiel 36. And I know this may seem like a, a long sub-point, but I think it's critical to understanding worship and all of the Bible's language about the glory of God. Um, why does God save why does God save anyone? Well, you can say because he abounds in steadfast love and glory and, and faithfulness. Absolutely. And I would argue, and I think this passage will argue, that God's saving activity is tied up with and one and the same with God's desire that his glory might be seen. In one sense, God's created the universe not because he was deficient, not because he was lacking anything. In one respect, I think you could seriously consider all of creation as a big projector screen, as a big movie screen, on which we could see and behold God's glory. God then creates an audience to behold that glory, the angels and, and man. And so we've got an audience to see, and we've got a massive tapestry on which to unfold his glory. And in that context, this is stunning. This is the new covenant passage in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36. This is what Jesus in John 3 will reference when he says you must be born again, born of the Spirit. But look at what the Lord says. Verse 22 of Ezekiel 36. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came and I'll vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and from which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. This is exactly what I think Jesus is talking about in John 3. And a new spirit I'll put within you, I'll remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I'll be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness, and I'll summon the grain and make it abundant, and lay no famine upon you. I'll make the fruit of the, vu- fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves, your iniquities, and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. So God acts to save his people, to give them a new heart, to cleanse them with water, to put his spirit on them, he says. In an ultimate sense, not because they're so lovely and they're so deserving of salvation, but because God wants to display his glory. And we just saw in Exodus 34 
that the heart of God's glory is he's a savior. He abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. So that means then that praying, oh God, don't you dare let any glory go to anything else. We want you to magnify and lift high your steadfast love and faithfulness. Your saving action is a prayer that God would act savingly. It is one and the same prayer. Oh God, make your salvation beautiful and wondrous. Lift it up, put every spotlight on it, magnify it so that every eye can see it. Is the same as praying, oh God, save. That's the logic. The logic of why God wants his people to praise him is precisely because, and turn now to 2 Corinthians 4, Precisely because, this even ties in with my pastor's pen article this month, that not only is God's glory and his zeal for his glory the the reason that he acts savingly, it's also the way we are saved. How, How is it that you and I are saved? And we could answer that question many ways. We're saved by the work of Christ on the cross. We are saved by the vicarious substitutionary death of the Son of God who lived a sinless life, born of the Virgin Mary, dying on the cross in our stead, taking upon himself in his flesh our sins, being raised again on the third day. We are saved by Christ's death. You could also answer, we are saved by faith, by which we mean what unites us to Christ, our faith, our trust in him. But I think another way you could answer the question equally, biblically, how are we saved? We're saved by beholding glory. And the logic there is, we will, according to this passage, we will never believe in, we will never trust in a savior and a gospel that appears odious to us. It is not until we see glory in Christ, until we see something beautiful in the gospel, that we will ever believe. And don't take my word for it. Look at 2 Corinthians 4. So we're saved by Jesus' work. We're saved by faith. You could argue we're saved by someone preaching the gospel to us. We're also saved by seeing glory. So, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, Paul is explaining both the failure and the success of his gospel ministry. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Why do they perish, Paul? In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light, the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Why do people perish and go to hell, even though you're preaching the gospel to them, Paul? The God of this world has stopped them from seeing any glory, anything wondrous, anything beautiful in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I preach the gospel of Christ, and it's boring to them. It's uninteresting to them. Or it's offensive to them. They don't see in it the wisdom of God. They don't see in it the beauty of Christ. And so in a very real sense, why do they perish? Because they're blinded from seeing the true beauty and glory of the gospel. Okay, how are people saved? Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, referencing Genesis 1 and creation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I would argue that if you're a Christian today, you are saved because of what Jesus did. You are saved because of your personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You're also saved because before you ever believed, God spoke to your heart, let there be light. Let this one see. Let the veil be removed. Let this one get some inkling of the beauty and the glory of my son. 
or let the spotlights turn on and let the glory go nowhere else. Let this one see glory. That's how you and I came to salvation. One day, I no, no good work on my own part, the gospel that I had heard over and over again took on a new weight and a new seriousness, a new reality. This Jesus who I knew of and I'd read of suddenly became compelling. And back in the land of Psalm 115, the Lord God, for the sake of his steadfast love, raised up his glory, and I saw it. So this opening call, O God, not to us, not to anything else in all creation, give glory, but to your name, for the sake of, on behalf of your steadfast love, is comprising both a call to act and a call to save, because God's commitment to his glory is why he acts in salvation, and God's commitment to his glory and us seeing that glory is how we get saved. So it is a very practical prayer. If God is the most glorious, wonderful, and satisfying person and thing in all of creation and in all of existence, then the most loving thing he can do, and the most loving thing you and I can do, is lift that glory up for all to see. In fact, we're going to see in the contrast coming up here in this psalm that in contrast, the idols have no glory. The, the, the gods of this world have no glory. They have no satisfying power. So the psalm opens with this petition that God would glory himself alone. Why? Because his steadfast love and his faithfulness are at the heart of his glory. His steadfast love and his faithfulness are at the heart of his glory. His saving work, his saving act, his saving nature and character is at the heart, central to what is glorious about him. And so we're saying that, put that on display. That, put front and center and make great and large So that you will act and so that men and women might see and respond to that glory. Okay? That's our first point in the first verse. Told you there's a lot going on here. But this is critical. Otherwise, you'll just think like C.S. Lewis. I guess God wants us to tell him how great he is again. And, you know, you'll play along because he's God after all. But And there's a logic at work here. If, if when in, missions will not succeed if the tribes and the peoples of the world do not see God as great and glorious. So part of our prayer that the gospel will go on, part of our prayers for our missionaries we support needs to be, oh God, help those peoples see how great you are. Don't let any glory go anywhere else. Don't let them think Xboxes are great. The Avengers are great. Don't let them even just think the creation and the universe is great. Let them see your greatness and your glory because in seeing that, they will turn in repentance to you. They will turn from their gods to you. That's the prayer. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us. But to your name, give glory. We're going to see even in the next verse, there's some suggestion in this context they may already be in the Babylonian captivity. There is some context where the nations are mocking them. And in that context, their greatest hope is that God will act for the sake of his glory. Because what does God do when he acts for the sake of his glory? He does two types of things. He tends to judge the wicked, or he tends to be gracious and saving to his humble people. And so if they are indeed in captivity, if that's the implication of verse 2, then the greatest prayer for deliverance would be, oh God, 
Act for the sake of your glory. Don't let your glory go anywhere else. O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Okay. That he would give, that he would glorify himself alone. Number two, second petition, that he would silence the taunts of the nations. This is what is vexing them. Why should the nations say, where is their God? And it's, it's a question that's really an accusation. The, the clear implication, they shouldn't. They should not say this. And yet throughout the Psalms, this is one of the chief torments of God's people. Psalm 42 reads this lament. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? We don't know this context. It may well be the Babylonian captivity. It may well be something else. What we have is a situation where the immediate circumstances might lead a scoffer to think the God of Israel is weak. The God of Israel doesn't deliver. The God of Israel doesn't act. Maybe they might think he doesn't have power outside of his land in Babylon or or any other number of causes. David wrestles with this as he's fleeing from Saul. And yet he's the Lord's anointed. If you were really God's anointed emissary and Christ, surely you'd be rich and powerful and successful, not hiding in caves, David. Where is your God, David? Where is he now? David in the Psalms confesses the vexation, the frustration, the, the suffering of that. There's something of this going on here. And I love the defiant response, which is point C. And this is another implicit, another implicit petition that he would accomplish his will from heaven. So the nations are saying to them, why should the nations say, where is their God? This response, our, our God's in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. This is another radically God-centered passage. Do you understand God is the only person in all of existence who does all that he pleases? And logically, it has to be that way. If there is any person in existence who does all and absolutely all that he pleases, logically, he must be the only person who can do so. Because if I can do all that I please... And Daniel can do all that he pleases. What happens if it pleases Daniel and what pleases me are at cross purposes? Definitionally, there can only be one who can do all that he pleases. There can only be one will that is supreme. There can only be one plan and purpose that is utterly unthwarted. And the Israelites say, you may not see him here on earth. His activity might be hidden from you, but make no mistake. Our God is in the heavens and he does all. All that he pleases. Whatever you may think is going on, it's not that his plans have been frustrated. It's not that, you know, Baal scored a few points this round. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. No one stays his hand. No one thwarts his will. This is a point God has taught to pagans at least twice in the Bible. Remember Nebuchadnezzar gets up on his wall Babylon's a pretty big city. I must be a pretty big guy. God says, go eat grass for a few years. And Nebuchadnezzar comes back, and he writes a decree. I mean, this is amazing. God humbles the greatest king of his day to write a decree, giving praise and glory to him. And in that decree, Nebuchadnezzar actually gets to write a chapter of the Bible. You ever consider the various authors of the Bible? You'd have to put Nebuchadnezzar on that list in Daniel 4. And what does he say? This public decree to all of his kingdom. 
Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among all the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So at one point, when Nebuchadnezzar got a little too big for his britches, the Lord taught him that he's the God of heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. The fishermen with Jonah learn a similar message. Jonah 1.14, Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. You do whatever you want, so please. And they're scared in part because Jonah's telling them to throw him overboard, but he's also told them he's a prophet of this God who's doing this, and they're really kind of confused. Won't your God be mad at us for throwing? They're like, okay. You're the Lord. Whatever you say goes. We're going to do what he said to do. Please don't hold it against us because you do whatever you please and we can't thwart that so we'll toss him over. So here's the initial opening salvo petitions. Oh Lord, lift up your salvation. Lift up your grace. Lift up your saving activity and work. Don't share your glory with another. Oh Lord, silence the taunts of the nations and silence them by acting Show them what we already know, that you're in heaven and you do whatever you please. Show them that whatever's going on that might lead them to think the God of the Hebrews is weak. It's an utter falsehood. It's the opening petitions to the God of heaven. So then we turn to a bit of satire. In contrast to this God who rules heaven, this God who is absolutely free and sovereign, who does whatever he pleases, whose purposes and plans are never frustrated, we have the God's lowercase g of this world. And it would be comical if it wasn't so sad. Their idols, that they're linking back to the nations, their idols, silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. We have the folly of trusting idols. Three points here, and this will be all of our time that we have left. One, and this should be right up front and obvious. These gods are man-made. They are not makers of things. They are made. These gods are the works of men's hands. And this point is made abundantly clear. Turn over to Isaiah 44. And I'll give you the next point as well, because Isaiah 44 makes this point as well. They are utterly impotent and unfeeling. They are impotent and unfeeling. They are not makers. They don't have life in themselves. They're not self-existence. They're made by the creation. I mean, they're, they're rungs down the ladder. They're not even made by God. They're made by the creature made by God. And they're... Utterly impotent and utterly unfeeling. Isaiah 44. It's a very similar type of passage. Verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing. The things they delight in do not profit. Their witness 
neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that it is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame. The craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be all put to shame. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. This God is made by weak man. Again, the, 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 the focus is on the chain here. Even the one who makes the God himself grows weak and is faint. We're further removed from omnipotence. And if the point is, whoever makes you is greater than you, and if the one who makes you needed to take a dinner break and a lie-down rest, how great can you be? That's, that's the rationale. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool, works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with a strong arm. He becomes hungry. His strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in the house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Whose rain, by the way? God, God's rain. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and, burn, and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He cuts down one in the same tree, takes the log. Some of the log he apportions to cook his food and heat himself. The other he makes into a god. That's a pretty important mistake. Not to, you got to figure the pagan lumberjack school, getting which end of the tree is god and which end of the tree is fuel. You want to make sure you don't want to mix that up. Um, that's, that's an important distinction I imagine you got to make. And I'm bringing the humor out because it's meant to be ridiculous. That these people make gods out of the same tree they cook their dinner on. Half of it he burns in the fire, verse 16. The other half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, ah, I have I am warm. I have seen the fire. The rest of it, he makes into a god his idol and falls down and worships it. And he prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so they cannot see their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. I shall make the rest of it an abomination. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. The deluded heart has led him astray. He cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? That's the first point to note about idolatry. Idolatry is always involves worshiping the creation and the created order. Overt idolatry is probably the most ridiculous, but worshiping money, the approval of other men is equally foolish. There are many gods in this world. So first, they're man-made. If you're worshiping the creation, that should be a good sign that something's out of sort, something's wrong. These gods are man-made. But second, and where he spends most of the attention in this passage, they are impotent and unfeeling. Um, turn over to Isaiah 6. I'm going to read through Psalm 115, but turn to Isaiah 6. We'll get there in just a minute, I think. Oh, man, I'm almost there. Mm-hmm. Maybe three weeks on this psalm. We'll see. We'll see. Um, 
what we get is a stack of what I will call um, sensory deprivation, okay? We get a stack of sensory deprivation. These idols, and the, and the point is this, they're an utter deception and a lie. They have a painted-on mouth. And so you look at them and you might think, oh, they can speak. They can't speak. They've painted on hands, but the hands can hold nothing. They've painted on or crafted feet that they don't want. They have the appearance of being able to do something, of hearing. I mean, look at the stacking list. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. They have noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet that do not walk. They don't make a sound in their throats. They, they appear to have all this sensory action, sight, hearing, voice, touch. They appear to be perambulatory, mobile. Nope. They're impotent, and they're lifeless, and they're unfeeling. But the big zinger at the end of this passage is verse 8. That's the character and nature of idols. And you might sit back and say, I would never worship something so foolish. But the sad truth is, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. And I think this, this key verse, which by the way is repeated nearly word for word in Psalm 113, verse 18, is a key to understanding what is likely the single most quoted passage in the Old Testament in the New, Isaiah 6. Um, it's definitely the second most quoted and if you count all the illusions, the illusions being every place in the New Testament, he who has ears to hear, let him see. Let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Blessed are you if you have eyes that see. If you take all those illusions that take place throughout um, the Gospels, the Epistles, and the Book of Revelation, we have now the number one most quoted passage from the Old Testament here in Isaiah 6. This is Isaiah's commissioning passage, Okay. And you're familiar, this verse 1, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And He cries out, I'm an unclean man, and the Lord takes away his sin. Verse 7, he touched my mouth, and behold, his touched your lips, your guilt is taken away. So he's, he's forgiven and cleansed. Verse 8, and I hear this a lot at, um, at pastoral Commissionings, people graduating seminary, people you know, lay on hands of a new pastor going out to preach. Uh, one of my friends, this was an evangelist, this is one of his favorite passages. But what's interesting is whenever I hear this pass, passage quoted in that context, they never quote verse 9, they just quote verse 8. Then I heard a voice from the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And then it's usually followed, and so we're sending Chris out to go preach. God tells Isaiah, not just I need someone to go, but I got a message for them to give. What's the message? Verse 9, he said, go and say to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, Blind their eyes, lest they see with their ears, see with their eyes, did it again, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Isaiah, I want you to go out, I want you to announce, and I want you to accomplish the blinding, the deafening, the dulling of this people. Jesus quotes this passage as explaining why he teaches in parables in Luke 8. In Luke 8, 
The disciples come to him. They asked him what the parable meant. He said to you, it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables so that seeing they do not see and hearing they do not understand. In fact, in all four of the gospels, Jesus cites this passage to explain his use of parables. In all four of the gospels, Jesus says, just as Isaiah had a ministry of blinding and deafening and dulling, so do I. How does that make sense? It makes sense because of verse Psalm 115, verse 8. Worshippers of idols become like them. And what you're seeing in here in that description is nearly identical to the description of the idols, is it not? These idols have eyes but don't see. And the people who worship these idols, they eventually lose the capacity spiritually to see because those who worship them become like them. And these idols have ears, but they do not hear. And those who devote themselves to idols and worship them, they eventually get to the point where they can no longer hear and understand spiritual truth. And so on through the list. In other words, what the Lord is doing is not capricious. It's judgment. Isaiah, my people are a bunch of idolaters. And I want you to go tell them, you've been fashioned into the image of what you worship, and I'm going to finish the job. That's what Isaiah is doing. And Jesus, that's not all he's doing, but Jesus absolutely says, I'm doing two things. I'm calling those who have ears to hear. That's when he keeps saying those who have ears to hear. Some of you are not idolaters. Some of you understand what I'm saying. You're tracking with me, Jesus says. This is for you. For the rest of you, you're blind. And it's your fault you're blind. The announcement of spiritual sensory deprivation is an announcement of judgment. It's tantamount to saying, you're idolaters. You worship idols. Why? Because you're starting to look and feel like them. And it all hinges on Psalm 115, verse 8, and Psalm 135, verse um, 18. So this is huge. This is huge. Um, if you had your finger in 2 Corinthians 4, turn back there very quickly, and then I will lead us through communion. Um, the, the principle here is this, and this ties in with the opening cry. Why also, I'll give you a third reason why we might want God to glorify his steadfast love and his faithfulness. The first reason was, for the sake of God's steadfast love and faithfulness, he Acts savingly. The second is only by seeing the glory of God and his steadfast love and faithfulness can the veil be removed and we be saved. I'll give you a third reason why you and I want, desperately need God to be committed to his glory. And that is just as the worshipers of idols are conformed to their image, so we're conformed to God's image by seeing his glory. Go back, 2 Corinthians 3. Speaking about Moses going up and coming down with a veil. That's where the metaphor of the veil came from. Moses went up on the mountain. He met with God. He came down. His face was glowing. It creeped the people out. They said, you got to cover that up. Um, verse 15. Yes, and to this day, whenever Moses is read, the veil lies over their heart. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. That's the veil he's going to talk about in a minute when he says those who are perishing are perishing because they don't see glory. Verse 18. We all, with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The same principle that holds true with idols holds true with God. 
You will become what you behold. You will begin to resemble what you revere. If you are enthralled by money and power and sex and the the praise of man in this world, it will conform you to its image. That's why Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world. It will shape you. You cannot worship and remain unchanged. Likewise, if you see glory in the Son of God, that will change you. How do we grow as Christians? We keep coming back. Lord, show me your glory. Open. I need to see something wondrous about you so I can be changed. Worship does that. Worship is us reflecting what we see. We see glory in something. Now, maybe you see glory in a big stack of cash. That will affect and conform and twist and change you. If you come back again and again to God's word and you see glory in him and his purposes, you'll be conformed to his image. And that's another reason that would lead us to say, oh, Lord, not to us, not to anything else. Give glory to your name. We want to see that glory. Lift it high. Put it on a pinnacle point where every eye can see so that they might come and be saved and so we might be changed and transformed. That's the first eight verses of Psalm 118. We will hopefully finish it off next week. I'm going to call the men forward as we prepare for our communion time this morning, and I will, as they come forward, I will pray, and we will uh, have a time of communion. Let me turn to 1 Corinthians here.